One, Piraeus Bank, fell nearly 30% and has in total lost almost half its value since Sunday's election. You're listening to the news on RTHK. for the last three to five years. Part of financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The U.S. Fed raises its assessment of the economy while staying patient on interest rates. U.S. stocks sink on crude losses while the Fed pledge boosts bonds. And China accuses Alibaba of lacking proper oversight of merchants. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll ask Michael Hansen Lawson, who is the CEO of East Capital, about his thoughts on the downgrading of Russia. That's after a market wrap with Fraser Howie, author of Red Capitalism. Peter Lewis, our regular Thursday co-host shares his insight on why the markets are likely to be disappointed with China growth, global growth, the ECB and earnings. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. Is it a good morning given all of that uh, sort of dismal outlook? A very volatile morning, that's for sure. Certainly overnight in the markets. Yep. What else is new? (laughs) It's uh, day one at work for Greece's new government and already international markets have signaled their displeasure. The stock market in Athens fell more than 9%. The newly elected Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras has told his first cabinet meeting that the country will not default on its bailout debts, but he has promised voters an end to austerity, which means that he needs to persuade other European leaders to write off at least part of uh, Greece's debts. The BBC's Mark Lowen has this assessment on what the Prime Minister had to say. Alexis Tsipras is trying this sort of fine balancing act, I think, uh, in terms of his rhetoric today, uh, trying to remain defiant in the face of austerity while reassuring Greece's Eurozone partners that he's not going to simply walk away and stop answering the phone to Angela Merkel. Uh, Let me just give you a quote from, from the Cabinet meeting earlier on today. He said, we won't get into a mutually destructive clash with the Eurozone, but we will not continue the policy of subjugation. I think what is likely to come out of all of this is some kind of classic Eurozone fud. Northern European countries, northern European governments in, in Berlin and Helsinki and The Hague are not simply going to accept writing off half of Greece's debt. Uh, but I think that there could be some negotiation about sort of extending the, the repayment period of loans or lowering the interest rates so that neither side really loses face. But clearly there is a lot of pressure from Athens uh, to try to make some headway on all of this. The, in a sense, Mr Tsipras' negotiating um, power is that uh, he knows that Germany doesn't want Greece to leave the Eurozone because that would be the ideological failure of the single monetary union. Now, Danielle Noy is the chair of the ECB's supervisory board, and she says the Greek banks will survive the current market turbulence. Greek banks are uh, facing, facing a difficult situation right now because of the uh, recent elections, but uh, they are uh, pretty strong. They have uh, a lot of good work has been done to strengthen their balance sheet during the, the last years. So I think uh, they will go through this crisis like the, they went through the previous ones. They need to manage uh, in a conservative fashion their liquidity positions. That uh, that's the main focus uh, right now. Uh. 
So, Peter, do you agree with uh, Danielle? Do you think that Greek banks can actually survive this? Well, first of all, she's on the ECB's supervisory board, so I suppose she's got to say that, and it's important to try and keep market confidence in the Greek banks. But the fact of the matter is, um, first of all, the Greek economy is in a depression. Its GDP has fallen by more than a quarter since the Eurozone crisis. Unemployment's 27%, and youth unemployment, in other words, people under the age of 25, is almost 60%. So... The austerity that's been imposed upon Greece has has, um, led to the people of Greece paying a very, very big price. And if they are to carry on servicing um, the $320 billion of current debt, that austerity is only going to get worse. So the big issue for Greece is... What does it do about this debt level? And there's only three ways you can get yourself out of debt. You either grow your way out of it. Now, there's no um, amount of economic growth that can pay back $320 billion of debt. That's 175% of their GDP. The second way that governments normally try is to create inflation. But there's actually the reverse. There's deflation in the Eurozone, so that isn't going to work. So the third way is... Debt restructuring or default, that is really the only option that is left for the Greek government if it's not going to continue down the austerity path. So there's really going to be a standoff between the Troika of the EU, the IMF and the Greek government. So it sounds like, you know, this really is a matter of balance. I mean, on one hand, okay, it sounds like debt restructuring is inevitable. But uh, what about the whole discipline fact? I mean, how wrong is the Troika in insisting that Greece needs to stick to the terms of its bailout. Well, when when there's debt, you know, you, you can't sort of take the moral high ground and say that, you know, creditors are always right and debtors are always wrong. Creditors have a responsibility as well to lend responsibly, not take reckless um, sort of risks. And the fact of the matter was, um, you know, people have lent to Greece to bail out their banks an enormous amount of money that there really is no chance of it ever being paid back. The problem is that most of that debt is owned by the EU and uh, the ECB. So if it is um, forgiven... It's actually the taxpayers of other countries that have to bear that. So if you take Germany, for example, you know, their share of that debt is about 2.2% of their GDP, which in effect is borne by German taxpayers. In Portugal's case, a smaller country, it's even higher. It's about 3.2% of GDP. So this is where the standoff is going to come because Germany and other countries are going to say, we are not going to write this off and let our taxpayers bear the cost. Greece is going to say we can't afford it and we can't simply carry on paying. Yeah, understandably so. Uh, that said, you know, the word is that the other countries, uh, Germany and, you know, the other northern countries are definitely committed to keeping Greece in. But you don't necessarily agree with that because you say that the markets are significantly underestimating the possibility of a Grexit. Yes. Well, this is the route down how, how that could happen. If there is no agreement, um, the Greek government is simply not going to be able to pay. And, it, and it's, the, it's the, old, um, you know, the old adage of ruinous debt, what can't be paid won't be paid. So if they default on their debt, in effect, they can't stay in the euro because the ECB can no longer lend to their banks. It cannot buy defaulted bonds. So Greece is left without a central bank anymore. So its only alternative is to leave the euro, set up its own central bank, reintroduce its own currency. Now, that would be disastrous for Greece, but maybe the Greek government may say the alternative is going to be even worse for us. So it won't be good for Greece and it won't be good for the euro either.
Okay, so I guess the big question is, does this situation stay contained in Europe or does it make its way across the Atlantic? So far, uh, Wall Street has not been overly affected by what's happening in Greece. It's been more affected by other things. Wall Street stocks uh, closed sharply last night as worries about the strong U.S. dollar and falling oil prices outweighed some strong earnings reports. The U.S. Fed says that it will adopt a patient approach to raising interest rates. The Fed is more bullish on the U.S. economy. It's still worried of course, about inflation running too low, but expects that it will eventually rise towards its uh, their uh, 2% target. And the Fed is now factoring in international circumstances and uh, financial markets. Here's Bloomberg's Washington correspondent Peter Cook with the details on the Fed statement today. First of all, starting with the new language on the economy, information received since the Federal Open Market Committee met in December suggests that economic activity has been expanding at a solid pace. Labor market conditions have improved further with strong job gains and a lower unemployment rate. Some of the new language here on inflation. Inflation has declined further below the committee's longer run objective, largely reflecting declines in energy prices. Market-based measures of inflation compensation have declined substantially in recent months. Survey-based measures of longer term inflation expectations have remained stable. They go on in the statement to say that inflation is anticipated to decline further in the near term, but the committee expects inflation to rise gradually toward 2% over the medium term as the labor market improves further and transitory effects of lower energy prices and other factors dissipate. The committee continues to monitor inflation developments closely, and again, as they factor in everything they're looking at as they decide on interest rates, their assessment will take into account a wide range of information, including measures of labor market conditions, indicators of inflation pressures and inflation expectations, and new language here, readings on financial and international developments. Based on its current assessment, the committee judges that it can be patient in beginning to normalize the stance of monetary policy, repeating that key line from the December meeting, also dropping the previous language about considerable time uh, as expected. So John Herman is a director of U.S. interest rate strategy at Mitsubishi UFJ Securities, and he says that the core inflation could actually go lower. What's going to be interesting going forward, the Fed's acknowledging that oil is this big drag on headline inflation. We all know it. We've built it all in. We've got negative inflation in the next three or four months, that kind of thing. But uh, what's going to be a little bit critical is what's the trajectory for core inflation? So we actually think there's a chance that core inflation sort of grinds lower over the next six to eight months, more consistently uh, below this one and a half percent growth rate. So you kind of drift away from their two percent target. Wages, we're going to have to watch wages closely, even on Fridays number on the ECI index. Uh, so just watching all these things. And I think, uh, you know, we do have, we owned a forecast for a long time that this unemployment rate would come down super fast. Over 55% of the decline is due to structural problems in the labor market. So the Fed really can't be happy with all these kind of things. And it calls into question, where is this Nehru number? You know, maybe it's in the 4% reading with unemployment, not really the 5.3% the Fed thinks. Investors were clearly disappointed. The Dow lost 1% to finish at 17,191. The S&P 500 slumped 1.4% to 2002, while the Nasdaq fell 0.9% to 4,638. And in company news, Apple shares rose the most in nine months as the technology giant basked in the approval of the market after unveiling a gargantuan uh, gargantuan profits yesterday. Its stock rose almost 8% to just above 
117 US dollars. Billionaire Carl Icahn is one of Apple's biggest shareholders. He remains bullish. He says that the share is still undervalued, but he's raising his target price from its current level at $203. But he didn't say what he was raising it to. And quarterly profit at Facebook jumped by a third to 696 million US dollars. The social networking giant said that revenue in the final quarter of last year hit $3.85 billion as the number of active monthly users increased 13% to nearly $1.4 billion. It said it performed well on smartphones and tablets and the three-month period was also the first quarter in which Facebook took in more than $3 billion overall from ads, about two-thirds of that coming from mobile advertising. Rosenblatt Securities' Martin Piconen discusses the key metrics. All of those numbers are good, you know, obviously in terms of the mobile advertising number and the, although they don't provide an outlook, I still have a strong outlook for this year because I think those numbers trend forward. The one key metric that I look at and you use sort of touching on it is daily to uh, monthly active users, which they do report both on a total basis and mobile specific. And that was for mobile specific about 63%. So in other words, close to two thirds of people that touch in monthly are also doing something on a daily from a mobile device. And that's all key to usage and engagement and stickiness and all of those things that you want to see and I think are sustainable into this year. All right, let's bring in our guest this morning, who is Fraser Howie. He joins us from Singapore, and he is the author of Red Capitalism. Good morning, Fraser. Uh, Fraser, thanks for joining us on uh, Money for Nothing. Uh, One of the news headlines today, the Alibaba Group Executive Director Jack Ma is expected to face some tough questions when his company unveils its quarterly earnings. That's because a government regulator criticized uh, the e-commerce giant for offering fake goods on its uh, online marketplaces and for lax internal controls. Now, um, you know, Alibaba has really been the talk of the town uh, for quite a while, you know, since its IPO last year. Uh, this kind of thing, sort of fake goods and lax internal controls, was this inevitable? I, I think it was. These, you know, China is associated with fake goods and has been for a very long time. I think, uh, although this, I think this specific report has been, the publication of it has been delayed somewhat, and I, I share a lot of the evidence or work was done a number of months ago in the middle of last year. So it's, we know that China is full of fake goods. Alibaba has thousands, if not millions, of merchants. It's how on earth can they effectively police this? And I'm sure they're taking measures to try and improve that. And there have been certain clamps down in China on fake goods. But IP property protection and fake goods are just rife in China. It's going to be a never-ending problem for Alibaba. And I'm sure if I was an investor, I'd be somewhat annoyed that why didn't I know about this before the IPO? Um, and why am I only finding out about this report a few weeks afterwards? And, and why has the Chinese government left it this late to release that report? As you rightly say, this was known about and, and was investigated before the IPO. Are they trying to send out a message here to, uh, to Jack Ma and Alibaba, do you think? Is, is this a sort of a targeting now of Alibaba? I think it is to some extent. You know, the, 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 the Chinese government obviously has, has kept Alibaba close. It's, it's, it's a private company. It's obviously not a state-owned company, but it very much knows where the rules are in China. And uh, I think this is the Chinese. They let it go public, and they give it all the fanfare, and Jack Ma becomes this, a flavor of the month and whatever. And yet, at the same time, then they pull on the leash, and they say, no, no, you're, you know, we're the boss here. And they want to, they are sending a message to Alibaba to, to, 
you know, to, to improve its game, as it were, but also just to show that the, the, the government holds all the power in China. And, and do they want to try and increase competition? Because, you know, Alibaba really thrashes all the competition uh, out, out of sight. Is, is the government trying to sort of even the playing field a little bit here? I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think it's more a case of just trying to keep the existing players in line. You, you have a sort of just literally a handful of dominant players in China in a lot of these sort of internet spaces. Um, and uh, I, it's hard to see how you develop competition in that space uh, when you've already got such dominant players. It's very hard to see how Alibaba gets challenged in, in its particular space. It's more a case of keeping it in line. I think what's interesting here as well, though, is... Uh, as I said, we've known about frauds in China and, and fake goods for, for, for decades, frankly. Um, and these problems won't go away. So no one should really be surprised by these reports. Um, as with many things in China, we, we sort of ignore all the downside until it's right in front of our faces. And then everyone acts surprised that, oh, I didn't know that there were fake goods or I didn't know there was corruption or whatever it may be. Um, I think we fool ourselves at times with these issues. So, um, Fraser, do you think this uh, puts the spotlight then on other Chinese companies in the Internet space? I mean, do we think that the state administration is now going to be looking at the Tencents and the Baidus to see, uh, you know, how lax or not their internal controls are? No, I certainly think that. I don't think that would be surprising at all to see that. We know that there's a continual clampdown on you know what the on on internet censorship and anything they deem inappropriate in China, I think it wouldn't be surprising if we see that in in other areas um, for in, internet controls, whether it be fake goods, whether it be content providers, whatever. This is a continuing campaign, and clearly under Xi Jinping, there is a his, he clearly is trying to clean house. I don't think he's ultimately going to be successful, but there's lots of places to clean in China because it's a pretty murky environment in the business field. And certainly on the internet. So, uh, you know, I'm certain other firms will be targeted as well. So, why do you say, uh, you know, he's not going to be successful? Um, well, ultimately, because I believe that a lot of the corruption in the fake goods is a systematic problem. And I don't see that he's bringing in anything to go and basically improve the system of accountability or openness and transparency in China. I think that's the problem um, that you can. You know, the corruption is everywhere. It's rife throughout society. So finding examples of corruption and, and penalizing individuals or even companies is relatively straightforward. But how do you improve the overall, uh, you know, transparency and accountability in China? That's much harder, and I don't see that happening. All right. Well, Fraser, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. That is Fraser Howie. He is the author of Red Capitalism, and he joins us from Singapore. The Nikkei is down 115 points to 1,680. Uh, Australia's ASX index is down a quarter of a percent to 5,503. And Sol's Kospi down half a percent this morning to 1,950. In currencies, one euro will buy you 1.12 U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is currently trading at 117 yen, and the pound sterling is worth 11 Hong Kong dollars and 73 cents. The road is not for text messaging, nor for social networking, and of course, not for mobile games. Drivers should always be on the alert. Those who use mobile phones or tablets while driving are risking their lives. For safety's sake. Keep your hands on the steering wheel and your eyes on the road. No distractions. Drivers should pay attention to the road ahead. 
melody this morning in honor of our next segment and our next guest. Uh, Russia's first junk bond rating in a decade continues to uh, push the nation's bonds lower and stocks decline as the threat of fresh sanctions over the conflict in Ukraine and an oil price slump batter its economy. The question is, where is all of this heading? Peter, what are your thoughts? Well, there's there's a, a few worrying things there. I mean, we're starting to see the ruble once again head to um, sort of record lows. We've had the S&P um, sort of downgrade. And then last night, the uh, the Russian government announced it was going to set up a bad bank, a $35 billion bad bank, which in effect is going to buy some of the assets off of um, the existing banks. And it's going to put one trillion rubles um, into the banking system to recapitalize it. 300 of that has already gone into one bank, VEB. So it does sound like that um, the sanctions um, the, uh, are cutting off a number of key state companies um, and, uh, and public companies from financing, and it's having a big effect. What about the companies that are not public? What about the corporates? Well, Russia's got a lot of reserves. Um, it's got, you know, $370 billion of reserves. The problem is that if you have to start bailing out um, some of your largest companies or injecting capital into some of your largest companies, those reserves can be run down um, sort of quite quickly. And I think that's one of the reasons why S&P have downgraded um, Russian bonds to junk. All right. So let's bring in our next guest. We have with us in the studio Michael Hansen Lawson from East Capital Asia. He's a specialist in Russia and Eastern European markets. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, reading. So so, uh, Michael, give us your thoughts. What effect will this S&P downgrade have on Russia's financial position and on its markets? Well, if you look at sovereign-denominated debt, uh, that in U.S. dollars, <clears throat> uh, the yield has risen uh, about 40 basis points um, to seven and a quarter, and in rubles about 45 to 13 and a half in the last two days. That is actually not a lot. And one of the reasons is that this move of the downgrade by the S&P was actually very heavily flagged beforehand. So what happened was in the second half of last year, um, external debt owed by Russian sovereigns and more important corporates um, was paid down by a whopping 132%, which is 18% of all debt. Now, that would partly account for the weakness of the ruble. But also, as Peter said, foreign exchange reserves are 370 billion plus. So um, Russia is still on a pretty firm footing as far as that's concerned. And, and during 2014, we saw a lot of Russian citizens converting rubles to foreign currency. We saw corporates doing the same thing, which was sort of fueling the, cap of the currency devaluation. Is that still continuing or has the Russian government now been able to halt that capital flight? Well, capital flight was estimated at $150 billion last year. Um, the estimates for this year seem to be around 60. 
Um, now, it, it apparently a lot of Russian citizens were buying physical real assets towards the end of the last year, apartments and cars and so on, rather than foreign exchange. Corporates have been encouraged to convert um, dollars or euros to rubles. Uh, and, of course, the, foreign, the central bank raised rates from 95 to 17% at the end of last year to encourage deposits in rubles. Um, in any event, with a current account surplus year, this year estimated to be $60 billion, um, obviously the capital flight can, can be easily financed. And, and how is the plunging oil, oil price affecting um, Russia's energy sector? Because this is a big part of its economy, isn't it? And what, what's that going to do, presumably reduce the profitability and, and make it a bit more difficult to service their debt? Well, the energy sector is lucky in the, sect- in the sense that it has revenues in dollars but costs in rubles. Um, so given that the ruble has dropped, has also the price of oil. Profitability actually hasn't been affected much. Um, but as with other corporates, <clears throat> the oil and gas sector has also been deleveraging. Uh, one of the larger ones, Rosneft, only last week raised six, 400 billion rubles, which is about $6 billion, um, for six years at 11.9%. So, Michael, uh, you know, Barclays and Goldman Sachs have uh, just announced that they're expecting the price of oil to drop significantly further, maybe even to the $30 range. How's that going to affect Russia? Well, if Goldman Sachs and Barclays are right, then clearly the ruble will drop. Uh, On the other hand, if you um, adhere to the um, prediction of the Secretary General of OPEC that a barrel of oil will be actually $200, then the ruble will be be this year's best-performing currency. I mean, I think the important point here is that the ruble is now a free-floating currency. So if there is to be support from the central bank, it can elect when it does it. It's not a peg currency when the central bank is committed. So uh, reserves shouldn't drain unduly. And and it's the uncertainty in Europe with Greece and with with the euro and and the weakening economy um, in in Europe. Is that having an effect on Russia or is it reasonably insulated from that? Reasonably insulated. um, Of course, um, energy, which is Russia's main um, uh, export earner, you know, the demand for that will be probably pretty much undiminished. Um, from European um, importers. And, um, of course, Russia is a big potential export market for the Europeans. So as the European economy weakens, one would expect that the pressure um, uh, would be quite uh, intense for these sanctions not to be continued in July. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Michael Hansen Lawson, and he is the CEO of East Capital. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is down 133 points to 17,662. Australia. <laughs> Excuse me, Australia's ASX index up uh, one tenth of a percent to 5,521, and Seoul's Kospi down half a percent to 1,952. Peter, parting thoughts for the morning? Well, watch the central banks. There is a global currency war going on of competitive devaluation. So in January alone, nine central banks have now cut interest rates, most of them by surprise. Denmark did it twice in one week, in in fact. Um, And there's almost a race to the bottom now. Almost every currency in the world is declining against the US dollar.
dollar. Um, and the only one that hasn't so far into any significant extent is the RMB. So what does the People's Bank of China do when currencies around it in some of its biggest export markets um, are falling and, and making its exports quite uncompetitive? Yeah, that really is the big question. Will it follow the herd or is this an opportunity to be different? All right, Peter, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. He is our regular Thursday co-host and uh, you can certainly send him questions by posting a comment to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash money for nothing on RTHK Radio 3. And I'm Renita Malhotra Hora wrapping up uh, for money for nothing this morning. A quick look at the weather forecast. Today will be mainly cloudy with sunny periods during the day. The temperature right now is 15 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 83%. And here's the news with Sam Butler. The family of a Jordanian fighter pilot held hostage by the Islamic State group is intensifying its pressure on the government of Jordan to do what it can to save his life. In a video on Tuesday, IS threatened to kill the pilot and a Japanese journalist, Kenji Goto, within 24 hours unless Jordan released an Iraqi female jihadist. Jordan has offered to release her. However, the pilot's father says the Jordanian government isn't doing enough to save his son. I suggest that the people of Jordan put pressure on their government to protect the lives of their sons. Otherwise, it will be their own king who will be responsible for killing them because of his own stubbornness. You have to realise that Muat will not be the last soldier or Jordanian citizen who will be sacrificed. Meanwhile, the Japanese government is analysing a new voice recording purportedly from hostage Kenji Goto. In it, he says the Jordanian pilot will be killed unless Jordan releases the female jihadist prisoner by sunset tonight. The message hasn't been verified. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says those responsible for a deadly attack on an Israeli military convoy will pay the, pr- the full price. Two Israeli soldiers died and seven were wounded in a rocket strike near Israel's border with Lebanon. It's thought to have been a response to an Israeli attack on Hezbollah and a